0: Let me tell you about the most meaningful, at least to me, sermon that I've ever preached in my life. I've done it twice. Once where Adam grew up, or did a lot of his growing up. He started the third grade in Dexter, Missouri, and we were there through his freshman year at Freed Hardeman. And I preached this sermon once over there, and I'm sure he remembers it because he remembers everything I've ever preached. And then I did it once at Central, since I've been at Central and Paducah for the last 15 plus years. When we were in Dexter, it was literally a matter of cutting, and it wasn't cutting and pasting, it was cutting and taping. There were no computers, I don't think, back then, or at least there were, I didn't have one. And so I took various translations of the Bible. I found a portion of Scripture that we're going to be talking about briefly this morning, and then kind of center in on the the text for this morning. And I tried not to use a translation that most people were familiar with. Most of my memory work, probably what little I have, and probably most of your memory work is from the King James translation. So I didn't use the King James. I'd use like the American Standard and the New American Standard and various translations. I'm not even sure if the ESV was published back then. And I would find a portion of this in one translation. I'd cut it out. I found the next portion in another translation. I'd cut it out. And just back and forth and back and forth, I literally taped all those little pieces of paper together. And then I took the time, don't ask me to do this now because I can't do it. I'm getting too old for that, I guess, or it's been a long time since I've done this. I took the time to memorize what was on those cut out pieces of paper. When I was in Paducah, we did have computers. And I was able to actually cut and paste on a computer and print it out and and do the same thing. I stood up on those two Sunday mornings. And I told the people who were there, Today, you're probably going to hear the best sermon you have ever heard in your entire life. It has nothing at all to do with the fellow presenting the material. It has nothing to do with how the material is presented, although that's one of the reasons I tried to memorize what I was going to be doing because I didn't want it to come across like I was just reading, just the monotone reading voice. I wanted to preach like I normally preach. It has to do with the content of the material and the one who delivered this material originally. And I also did that because, I used the various translations, because I didn't want somebody to become too familiar with one of them and think, well, I've heard all this before. And so with that brief introduction, and then extending the Lord's invitation at the end, I preached the Sermon on the Mount. No commentary, no nothing. I just preached the Sermon on the Mount with the introduction, the invitation, and I did it in about the same amount of time that I normally preach. That experience, I have no idea if anybody else in Dexter, Missouri or Paducah, Kentucky remembers that or not, but I'll never forget it. That really... Had an impact on my life. There is a lot, a lot of material. Sometimes, sometimes we get into the habit of taking the Sermon on the Mount apart, which we're going to do a little bit this morning, and looking at various sections of it. But just sometimes just read through the Sermon on the Mount, how much material there is. There's some material as it begins that have to do with attitudes and influence. You may be familiar with the name Robert Schuller, the Crystal Cathedral fame of years ago, which, by the way, the last time I saw any news about the Crystal Cathedral, it's now owned by the Catholic Church. His empire fell apart and had all kind of infighting and so on and so forth. But years ago, Mr. Schuller wrote a book called The Be Happy Attitudes because that word that's translated blessed, blessed are these and blessed are those, could also be translated happy, and so he wrote a book about the be happy attitudes, and his take on it was like some people today, some feel good preachers today, the Bible is all about making me feel good. If you'll follow the Beatitudes, you'll feel good, you'll be happy. And so there's some material in the Sermon on the Mount about attitudes. There's some material in the Sermon on the Mount about influence. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And I may be the last one in this room that noticed this fairly recently. But it's been fairly recently in my life where I found out or I realized that Jesus did not say what I thought He said. Jim, you need to be the salt of the earth. Jim, you need to be the light of the world. That's not what He said. He said, Jim, if you're truly following me, you are the salt of the earth. Jim, if you're really my disciple, you are the light of the world. And then our text for the morning, he starts talking about the law and the attitude that people had toward the law. You know, we may think he went from going from influence and attitude and things like that. He went from that to just talking about some theological and doctrinal sorts of things. I'm not sure that's all that happened because we need to go back in time and think about the Jews' attitude toward the law and the influence the law had on them. And you probably figured out, I've already dropped my Ah, there it is. I found it. The Jews thought the law was pretty much it. They had been keeping the law for as long, longer than any of them could remember. Their dad lived by the law. Their granddad, great granddad, for generations, for centuries. The law was kind of their security blanket. You read through the Old Testament and you'll find times, of course, where they were very close to the law and kept the law very closely and they were very close to God and God blessed them. And then they would get away from the law. But kind of in the back of their mind, it was still kind of a security blanket that they could hold on to and they knew where it was and they could get back to it when they needed to get back to that security blanket. When things got so bad... They they could have things doing going better because of their keeping of the law. The Holy Spirit recognized that. The Holy Spirit says in Romans chapter 2, what advantage has the Jew? Much in every way, because unto them was committed the oracles of God. The oracles of God were committed to the Jews. They had the law, and so they were they were comfortable in that. I don't like to have my comfort zone tampered with. Do you? If you think that comfort zones aren't important, you have not been in charge of the thermostats in the church building. People get all been out of shape. We we got a no fan zone in our church building. We've got some what is it, eight fans, I don't have any fans or how many fans are in that thing? But we have people it, It's too hot. It's too cold. It's too this. It's too kind of like Goldilocks and all that sort of thing. You know, it's this and that. And so there are two two that aren't ever turned on. So if you don't, if you don't want to be cold or you don't want to be sit in that section of the auditorium, that doesn't satisfy everybody either because we all have our comfort zone. The Jews have become very comfortable because they were God's people because they had the law and and because. Sometimes their leaders had made them to be more comfortable than they should have been. You know, some of the things that Jesus said about, you have heard that it's been said, but I say unto you. Sometimes Jesus was talking about what the Old Testament law said. Here's what Moses wrote, here's what God said through Moses. But I say unto you, whatever. Sometimes, if you look at it very closely... He's not talking about what Moses said. He's talking about what some of the Jewish teachers said that the law of Moses said. And I think most of us are familiar with the fact that they had come up with ideas and ways and means to, to make themselves more comfortable than they should have been. Remember the discussion about Corbin or Corban or however you want to mispronounce that word? Jesus' disciples were being criticized because they weren't keeping the tradition of the fathers. And he says, why do you transgress the commandment of God with your tradition? And specifically what he's talking about was the care of elderly parents. Are you guys guys down here listening? The care of elderly parents. And the young people were supposed to take care of those older parents, but they had set aside a certain amount of money to take care of mom and dad But they'd worked out a way, well, really, we're going to dedicate this to God. Dad, I'm sorry, we can't help you. Mom, we can't help you. We're going to to save this to give to God. And really, in reality, they were thinking about using this themselves. The attitude, the influence, all plays a part in this. And Jesus comes along and he could have said, we're talking about why did my... Oh, there's a hole there. Now I know why I'm doing that. There's a hole in my pulpit. Oh, never mind. <laughs> okay, now we got the comedy relief over with. We'll go on with the lesson, I guess. Remind me, there's a hole there. What he could have said was, okay, I'm on the scene now. Everything you've heard Every single thing you've heard up till now, forget it and listen to me. I'm the authority. Is he? Yeah, he's the authority. Is there a sense in which he could have said something like that? Well, he had a discussion with some Jewish leaders one day. In John chapter 5, he gives various reasons why they ought to believe that he's deity. And he says, search the Scriptures. In them you think you have eternal life John five thirty nine but they are they which testify of me. So it's true that all this Old Testament prophecy is pointing to me. Colossians two fourteen, we're familiar with that probably. The Old Testament law taken out of the way and nailed to the cross. There is a sense in which he could have said, I'm on the scene. I'm the authority. Just listen to me. That's not what he said. What he said was, do not think I've come to, to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Hope you have your Bible open. And I don't know what translation you use. But it may be important to notice this if you haven't already noticed this before. This is the English Standard Translation. I'm not a translation Nazi by any stretch of the imagination. There are certain weaknesses and strengths that most translations have. And this is one place, I'll just go ahead and say, even though the ESV is what I use most of the time now and preach from and teach from now, this is one place where I wish they had done a better job. Look at Matthew chapter 5 again. And verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, flip over to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13. We'll start there. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one has broken down in his flesh a dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Jesus said, according to Matthew five seventeen, I didn't come to abolish the law. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, that's exactly what he did. He abolished the law. King James is better in Matthew 5.17 and Ephesians 2. King James uses destroy in 5.17 and abolish in Ephesians 2. What's the difference? They're two different Greek words. Two different Greek words. You've got an acorn. There are two ways to get rid of that acorn. You can take a hammer and you can smash that thing to smithereens and you've gotten rid of it. Or you can plant that acorn and it grows into a mighty tree that offers shade and all kinds of things for everybody else. Jesus did not say, I came to take the Old Testament law and put it under a hammer and smash it and totally destroy it. If he did, what did Paul mean when he said the things that were written aforetime were written through our for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope? If he did, throw the book of Hebrews out of your Bible. You can't understand Hebrews if you don't have the Old Testament. He didn't come to take the Old Testament Wad it up, throw it in a trash can, and burn it, to destroy it. He didn't do that. He did come to make the Old Testament law ineffective. Where, where's, in that picture on the right, where is the acorn that all of that came from? From which all of that came, Gary? He tried to help me out after class. He said, you know, Donna's a speech teacher, an English teacher. Don't end your sentences with prepositions. So, okay. Uh, from which all of that came. You can't find it anymore. It was in the ground. It began to do some things. And now here's this great tree. But you can't find. It's been fulfilled. It's completed It's purpose. Jesus says that about the Old Testament law. There's an interesting passage in Romans. It says that Christ, chapter 10 and verse 4, Christ is the end of the law. Is that not the same thing basically as saying, He's the fulfillment of the law. Didn't Galatians chapter 2 talk about the fact that the law was our schoolmaster? This is the uh, King James translation, to bring us to Christ. And you go back and you do a little study about Galatians chapter 2, and you learn that maybe the more modern day parallel of that would be the school bus driver. Not the schoolmaster, but the person that brings a young person for instruction. You bring the person here, you pick him up at home or her up at home, and you take him to the place of instruction, and here's where the real instruction takes place. Paul says the law was our schoolmaster, our school bus driver, the the one who took a person from one place to another to give them instruction. I'm wondering about that. I'm wondering about the fact that maybe Jesus is the end of the law in various reasons and various ways, there's one passage that says Christ our Passover. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. Christ our Passover. Is that what's behind the statement in John 1:29? Behold the lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Just as the Passover was a great event in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfills that in the New Testament. He is our Passover. And that, by the way, predates the law. Christ is also seen as the sacrifice. The sacrifice of one man, one time, forever. I mentioned the book of Hebrews a little while ago. Hebrews chapters 8 through 10. Just read that. Just read that and see if the writer isn't trying to get us to see how important the sacrifice of Christ is. Here's the blood of bulls and goats and here's all the Old Testament way of doing things. But here's Christ. I guess if there was one word I'd use to sum up the book of Hebrews, it'd be better. Better. Better law. Better Christ. Better everything. Better hope. Better. And this better sacrifice is spelled out in Hebrews chapters 8 through 10. Let me mention one that may sound a little strange. Christ, our Sabbath. Our Sabbath? I know that the Bible says that He's the Lord of the Sabbath, Matthew 12 and and verse 8. But I want to suggest to you that in a sense, in a sense, the Lord is our Sabbath. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you, what was the Sabbath day known as? A day of rest. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. I'm meek and lowly in heart. You will find rest unto your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you not going to be doing anything? No, you've got a yoke, but I'm on the other side of the yoke. But because I'm here, I can kind of be the, the Sabbath rest for you. I think that's kind of a far out idea. I think it's the fourth chapter of Hebrews you might want to look at. We talked about the fact that if Joshua had given them rest, the Old Testament people, there remains no longer a rest for the people of God. Here's another translation point you might want to mention. In the King James it says that Jesus had given them rest. Well, He did. The, the, the names Joshua and Jesus are so closely intertwined that the King James translators put Jesus there when it should be Joshua. And so I can find rest... In Him. One more passage, real quickly. Look at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10. And then we're going to bring this to an end. You, Paul writes, are complete in Him. Okay, so what? You're picking verses from here and from there and everywhere else, and you're throwing them up there on the screen... What's that got to do with anything? That word complete, describing me, you, us, if we are in Him, that is exactly the same word as Jesus, that came from Jesus' lips when He said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill. It's the same word that He told His disciples, His apostles on one occasion after His resurrection. These are words I spoke with you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled written in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. You are fulfilled in Him. You could translate that verse that way. I am grateful more than I can say that Jesus came to get rid of a law as far as us being under that law. That even Peter said, nobody could keep it. Acts chapter 15, neither us nor our fathers were able to bear this law, so I'm glad that I don't have to live by that Old Testament law. I'm glad that He did fulfill the law. But I want you to think about something this morning. I'm even more grateful that in Him I can find fulfillment. I don't care what kind of car I have or house I live in or portfolio I have or community in which I live or anything else. What's life all about? Life's all about being in Christ. Letting Him be Lord of my life. Allowing me to serve Him every day of my life. We sometimes talk about what's the role of the church? What's the role of the individual Christian? Is it evangelism? Is it edification? Is it benevolence? Well, yeah. But to me it's all under the umbrella. I'm here to glorify God. I'm here to bring glory to Him. And if I ever figure out that's what I'm here for, I'll find out what life is all about. It's not just words on a page. It's a life that's given to Him. The point is, I need to be in Him. So that's where we'll end. By asking everyone in this room, is that true of you? Is that true of me? Am I in Christ? Have I been baptized into Christ? Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27. Has that taken place in my life? And if I have been baptized into Christ because of my faith and my willingness to repent and let people know about my faith in Him, am I living my life in Him? Am I continuing to walk in the light as He is in the light? Why not I start this gospel meeting off with Your response, if you need to do that, right now as we stand and sing the song of encouragement.